Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 14. And also the handout that you should have. It might be a little bit easier to follow along this morning with that. You all know that I'm not perfect and nor ever was, so I'm going to share a story with you about my imperfection. When I was in high school, uh, I was told by my parents not to go to the movies, any movie at all, didn't matter if it were a Disney film or whatever it was, couldn't go to the movies in our family. Uh, I had the choice at one point in my uh, high school time when, when my brother and uh, one of his friends invited me to go to a movie. Nothing wrong with it. It would have been a movie we would have watched in our house, um, but I was not supposed to go to the movie theater, according to my parents. My brother knew that, but he had already decided he was going to go along with his friend, and I had a choice to make. Uh, who was, who was, whose pressure would I give into? Whose wrath was I more concerned about? Was I concerned more about the wrath of my parents or was I concerned about the wrath of my friends, my brother? And, uh, of course, you can imagine um, what I did there. I, I made the wrong choice. I defiantly disobeyed my parents and uh, didn't tell them about that. They actually never found out. Um, but... That doesn't make it right. It, it was very nearsighted of me. I was more concerned about the people around me and their view of me than my parents' view and ultimately God's view of me uh, because God put my parents over me for a specific purpose, to obey them, and I did not. Um, and uh, I'm sure you can think of times in your life when you had an opportunity to, to respond wrongly or rightly to peer pressure. And you have to ask yourself the question, you know, who's, who am I more concerned about? Am I more concerned about my relationship with God or my relationship with others? Our life is made up of a series of choices. And day by day, we, we have to make decisions that are going to have lasting value. If I choose to disobey God... I may face His wrath for all of eternity. But if I choose to obey God, then it very well could be evidence of, in fact, if I am obeying God, it is evidence of the fact that He has shown His favor to me. In Revelation chapter 13 that we looked at last week, we saw a vision of the Antichrist and his sidekick, the false prophet. And together they enticed everyone on the earth to worship the Antichrist and this statue that was made that was able to breathe out, that, that was given the breath of life and was able to speak and was able to kill those who did not worship it. During that time, in the tribulation, the Antichrist will have near universal control. At least he will have near worldwide control. That is, politically says in chapter 13, who is able to wage war against this one? Remember, he is killed by the king of the north and he comes back to life. I mean, who can defend themselves against him? Who can even attack him? So politically, he is superior. Religiously, all will worship him according to Revelation chapter 13. Now, we understand that's not all meaning every single person, but all who, do, who have the mark of the beast will worship him. There will be required to do so. And then thirdly, economically, he has power because he forces 
every human on the planet in order to do any type of commercial trade, whether you go to the grocery store or you need to get gas or whatever the case, you have to have the mark of the beast. And, uh, and so those who do not have it will be killed by the beast. And so what we have here is a line being drawn in the sand. And the Scriptures are clear that anyone who follows the beast will be destroyed with him. And in chapter 14, the focus of our attention this morning, we have some final warnings before uh, the seven bowls of judgment are poured out. That's going to happen in chapter 16. But here in chapter 14, we have some final warnings to the people on the earth. And they seem to be very clear warnings because at least six angels are seen. Three of them speak that we're going to look at this morning. Three of them speak and remind the people on the earth, you must repent. You must fear God. And this will be the final opportunity for people to repent because by the time the seven bold judge, once the seventh bold judgment comes, the battle of Armageddon, it'll be done. It'll be too late to repent at that time. And so this is their final opportunity. Let's read about uh, part of this. We're not going to go through the whole chapter this morning, but verses one through thirteen, chapter fourteen, verse one. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with Him 144,000, having His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of, uh, the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have, been, who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of water. And another angel, a second one, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. This passage is about a contrast that we're going to look at between believers 
and unbelievers. And the point that we need to see is that that we must believe and respond to the warnings of God through perseverance, through continual obedience all the way until the end of our lives. The structure of this passage is is uh, basically in verses 1 through 5 you have a vision of Christ in triumph. Christ is here seen standing on Mount Zion with 144,000 that we met in chapter 7. And then in verses 6 through 11 you have the announcement of the coming judgment. You have these three angels who go to the height of mid heaven, that is to the top of the sky, and they make these warnings. They give these warnings of coming final judgment. And uh, there are further angels that come in the next passage, verses 14 to 20, that we'll look at next week. But, but these first three are the ones we're going to focus on today. And they give these warnings of judgment. And if people do not respond to these warnings, then once the seven bold judgments come, it will be too late. Verses 12 and 13 conclude this section by giving us a challenge or an encouragement to persevere, that we should not give up hope, that we should... We should continue on because there is a clear distinction between believers and unbelievers. So that's the basic structure of the passage, but that's not how we're going to go through it this morning. Uh, We're going to look at it in terms of the the contrasts that we see. And there are these several contrasts in this passage between believers and unbelievers. The first one is their eternal destiny. Their eternal destiny. That is, will it be eternal rest or will it be eternal torment? All right, let's look at the eternal rest that is promised to those who do not take the mark of the beast in verse 13. The end of the verse says, Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. Hey, the Spirit says, the Holy Spirit, I believe, here talked about. It's talking about those who persevere. Those who, the beginning of verse 13, those who die in the Lord. Those are the people that will have eternal rest. That is, that they will be able to enjoy the special presence of God. Now, you recognize that God is everywhere. There's not one square inch on this universe where God does not live. But... This will be a special presence of God. This will be special fellowship with God that, that only believers will enjoy for eternity. The alternative is found in verses 10 and 11. And that is those who reject Him, unbelievers, will have no rest day or night. Look at verse 10. These are the people who worship the beast who get, get the mark on their forehead or hand. Verse 10 says, He also will, that is these people who do that, He also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is mixed in full strength in the cup of His anger. And He will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and His image and whoever receives the mark of His name. Okay, So at the end of verse 13, it talks about that believers will have rest from their labors, but here it says that these people will have no rest. They will have no rest day or night because it will be a time of eternal torment. Now some people would argue that this judgment that's coming, that this wine of God's wrath mixed in full strength is actually talking about the time of the tribulation. 
They say that it's referring to the tribulation because of the end of verse 10. Notice, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And so they say that this is actually referring to the Armageddon, which at the end of chapter 14, uh, we have the wine of God's wrath being poured out uh, that um, that he, people are actually going, going to be crushed in the winepress of His wrath, it says there at the end of the chapter. And so they argue that it's Armageddon. But notice in verse 11 how long this lasts. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. So I would argue that the, the judgment here in verses 10 and 11 is not specifically the tribulation, but rather the eternal punishment the eternal unrest. That's why it says there will be no rest day and night. They will be tormented forever and ever. And um, and so now we need to go back to the end of verse 10 because now we need to answer what, what is this talking about? The, that this judgment that takes place happens in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. So if, if we're talking about the Armageddon here, if John's talking about the Armageddon here, that, or this angel is, then... That makes sense. The Lamb and His angels are there carrying out this judgment. Their presence is there as this judgment is carried out. But how could they be present in hell as they're being tormented forever and ever? Um, Just because Christ is there, His presence is in hell, doesn't mean He's not also in heaven. Remember, Christ is God, obviously, and so He is omnipresent. He is everywhere at once. And so the the, the 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 worst part about about hell is not that people will get away from the presence of God, but they will be under the presence of God for all of eternity. Okay, now now I just said that we have a special presence. We're able to enjoy fellowship. They're not able to enjoy fellowship with him, but God, Christ, the angels are always going to be there. There there's going to be some angels who have guard over the prison of, of hell, the the place of eternal torment. And so they see God not as their friend, not as their their God, but as their judge. And that will be the worst part about hell. The picture of this torment is that it is, verse 10, the wine of the wrath of God mixed in full strength. In verse 8, it talks about the wine of the passion of their immorality. During that time, they would uh, their wine would be diluted. They would dilute it uh, in order to make it go farther. They really uh, didn't drink a whole lot of just plain water because it just wasn't drinkable. Um, and it was similar to the time during the gold rush in our country when uh, people wouldn't drink the water because it was so dirty. Instead, they would they would uh, make coffee and drink coffee instead. This is similar to what they would do. So they would actually had a diluted form. And so what what's talked about here in verse 8 that they'll drink a diluted form of the passion of their immorality. It won't even be the full amount of their, their, uh, their wickedness. But when they receive the wrath of God, it will be in full measure, undiluted wrath of God. And that's the contrast that you see there in verse 10. No longer will God be patient with them. God's wrath will be poured out in full measure. You see, God is is not messing around here. It's true that God is slow to anger and abounding in love, but His patience in this case will have been exhausted once 
this final judgment comes on people, they will experience the full wrath of God being poured out like a boiling cauldron of oil and 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 such great amounts that people will be not be able to avoid it. That's the full measure of God's wrath. We'll get a picture of that next week when we look at the second part of chapter 14. So their eternal destiny, based on what a person is, whether they're a believer or an unbeliever, is going to determine their eternal destiny. Now, next we need to look at the life that leads to one's eternal destiny. But before we get there, I need to, to talk about how a person how a person's destiny is determined. Look at chapter four or chapter fourteen, verse four. Okay, this is talking about the one hundred forty four thousand Jews, but I think it's also applicable to all believers. The end of chapter uh the end of verse four says these have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. So ultimately our eternal destiny is determined by what God does. He's the one who purchases purchases us through the blood of the Lamb, just as He did with the 144,000. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He bought us with His blood. Look at verse 13. 13 says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are those, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Okay, so, so here between verses 4, or I should say, including both verse 4 and verse 13, we see why, what determines a person's destiny. They're purchased by the Lamb and they die in the Lord. But what does God expect of those whom He has purchased? How ought to a person who has been who who has been bought by the blood of the Lamb, how ought they to live? And that leads us to our next point, the life that leads to one's eternal destiny. Okay, this doesn't purchase our eternal destiny, but this is a life that precedes our eternal destiny, we could say. First, it is that they respond to God's warning rather than reject it. Look at verse six. Respond to God's warning. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of water. So here the angel is up at the, the height of the heavens. And he calls out with a loud voice to every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation. And he says, fear God. Give Him glory. So here's the warning for them. And they ought to respond to it. Prior to the pouring out of the seven bold judgments, these, God allows these angels to mercifully come and offer a final warning so that people still have an opportunity to repent. Turn to chapter 16 because we'll see once this seventh bowl is poured out, the opportunity to repent is no more. Chapter 16, verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air. 
And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake earthquake it was it and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of His fierce wrath. And every island fled away and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Verse 17, there's a loud voice that comes from the temple saying, It is done. God's wrath has been poured out on the earth, and it is done. The opportunity to repent is no more. In fact, these people respond with a final blasphemy of God's name. They, they, they respond because they believe that, that this is a wicked God who would do such a thing. So, back to our passage, chapter 14, verse 6, we see that the angel gives an eternal gospel. This is the same gospel, the, the same fundamental parts of our gospel that we have. The gospel doesn't change over time. Okay, the gospel has always been the same. Um, from Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen, all the way till Revelation fifteen, the gospel always includes a recognition of personal sin, uh, the the requirement of us to believe in a redeemer. Okay, that doesn't change. The only thing that changes is that the redeemer becomes more specific. That. In the Old Testament, they didn't understand that it was the man, Jesus of Nazareth. We understand that it was Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, who was crucified and rose from the dead. And here, this eternal gospel is no different. It is the, the uh, recognition of personal sin and the recognition of the Redeemer, faith in the future Redeemer who would come to save them. And so here is how a person fears God, verse 7. The angel's calling for a fear of God. That is, that they give Him their undivided devotion. That they, as the text says, give Him glory. They worship Him alone. They worship Him above all created things. They don't usurp Him, move Him out of His throne and put someone else in His place or something else. And so the right response that leads to one's eternal destiny or that precedes one's eternal destiny is to respond to God's warning. The wrong response is to reject God's warning. We see this in verses 9 and 11. Verse 9 reads, Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, then we we already read about God's wrath being poured out. Verse 11, the second part, then they have no rest day and night those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. There's a clear warning here from the angel. Don't follow after the beast. And those who reject that warning will make clear what their eternal destiny is. Those who accept the mark of the beast will show who they're living for. And so we have 
an opportunity to respond or to reject. Number three, we need to look at what they live for. What they live for. Whether it's an eternal kingdom, that is, the difference between believers and unbelievers is whether they live for an eternal kingdom or a temporal one. Okay, One that's going to fade away. Look at verses 1-3. through We'll see that these Jews lived for an eternal kingdom. When I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with Him 144,000 having His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. John sees a vision. See that in verse 1? Then I looked and behold. John sees another vision, something that's going to happen. He sees a vision of the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Jesus Christ, right? The Lamb who was slain. Uh, He's referred to that often in in this book. He's standing on Mount Zion with 144,000 Jews. And I would argue that this actually takes place in the Millennial Kingdom, which leads into the Eternal Kingdom. But others would argue uh, that this happened in heaven at the end of the Tribulation. And basically, how we determine what John is talking about, which time period he's talking about, we have to understand what Mount Zion is there in verse 1. How do we understand Mount Zion? Now, some take Mount Zion to refer to heaven, like it is in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 to 24, where Mount Zion is referred to as the heaven, heavenly Jerusalem, that is the eternal dwelling place of God. So, if the Lamb here and the 144,000 are standing in heaven, the eternal dwelling place of God, during the tribulation judgments that John sees, then this must happen at some point at the end of the tribulation, prior to Christ's coming with His army. Because remember, Christ only has one more time in which He's going to come back to the earth. And this seems to to signify that he's standing on Mount Zion, that is God's dwelling place in heaven. He's standing there with the 144,000. So what some would argue is that the 144,000 are protected for most of the tribulation, but then at some point just before Christ comes back, they're all killed. They go up to heaven and they sing this new song that no one else can learn. And it says there that they are in the presence of the four living creatures and the elders, which are people, or I should say, uh, they are those who are in heaven. So it, it seems to be a pretty strong argument, but there's one problem with that view. In chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, when we first were introduced to the 144,000 Jews, they were said to have been sealed by God, that is, protected by God. They were said to have been protected while they were on this earth. Look, Turn back to chapter 12, verse 13, because I think a clearer passage that teaches us that the 144,000 Jews are protected is here. Chapter 12, verse 13. And when the dragon, Satan, saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Hey, who is the woman? Israel. And who is the child? 
Christ, right? So verse 14, But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman, Israel, so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place, where she was nourished for a time and times and half a times from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth so that he might cause her to be swept away. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. Okay, we've talked about this before, what's taking place here. The, the, the woman here specifically, um, the 144,000 Jews are protected from the wrath of the dragon on the earth. They are nourished in the wilderness for three and a half years. And so, uh, so what seems to be happening according to chapter 7 and now here in chapter 12 is that these, these uh, people, these 144,000 Jews, are being protected by God from death. They are some unusual, uh, some of those who are unusual among believers, that they are protected by God. So I would say that this 144,000 Jews that's talked about in chapter 14 are the same people, that they're literal people, and they're being protected by God all the way through the end of the tribulation, making it to the end. And so therefore, Mount Zion here cannot be referring to the Mount Zion in heaven. So, then we need to ask the question, when do we see in the future when the 144,000 Jews would be standing on the literal Mount Zion? When would that take place? Would it happen during the tribulation? No, it would happen at the end or at the very beginning of the millennium. And here, that's why I call this a time of triumph where Christ and, and these Jews are, 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 um, are standing in triumph, having overcome. And so if we interpret verse 1 as Mount Zion being the millennial kingdom, then we understand that this is actually John pointing to the future, that John is, is looking forward to a time when they will stand, when they will sing this song, and when they will be taught this song by the, the four living creatures and the elders. He's giving us a prophetic view. And I believe that this is part of the contrast that God is trying to show us here during the tribulation judgment, that some in the tribulation will persevere. And in the end, they will stand in triumph, but many will fall and follow the beast, and they will be tormented forever and ever. The 144,000 Jews are not those. So the angels from heaven accompany their song in verses 2 and 3. So we have this contrast, what they live for. Real believers live for the eternal kingdom. Those who are unbelievers live for a temporal one. And this temporal one is seen in verse 8. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now, here again, it sounds as if this is happening uh, at this point in the tribulation. Okay, At this point, we're before the... the the uh, the six bowls, the seven bowls have been poured out, but this word is fallen, fallen is Babylon is actually um, a future use of a present verb, and we do this in our language as well. We say things like "I am going to the store," okay, when we're talking about another day. I am going to the store on Friday. We say, so we're speaking in the present tense, but we actually mean future. Okay, so I think that's what John is doing here as well. Fallen, fallen is or will be Babylon the Great. 
And the reason I think that is because Babylon will be explained for us in chapter 17 and their fall. We'll look at that. That happens towards the end of the bold judgments. Babylon in Scripture is symbolic of, of all that is evil on the earth. The, the people that, that bind themselves together in one people group and oppose God and His laws. The first time that we hear this city mentioned is actually Genesis chapter 11. You know what's talked about in Genesis chapter 11? The Tower of Babel. Okay, but, but actually that word Babel is translated everywhere else in the Old Testament as Babylon. That is the place that stands against what God is doing, what God desires. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But they said, no, we want to build a city for ourselves. We want to build a name for ourselves. and we're, So we're going to stay here. We're going to build a city, a, a, a tower that, that makes its height to the heavens. Not to reach God, but to make a name for themselves. They stand opposed to everything that God uh, requires. And that's the way Babylon is seen throughout history. Babylon is known for its people who usurp God's authority like ancient Babylon. And this final world empire will be referred to as Babylon, even though it's probably a Roman empire. They will seek to usurp the authority of God. In fact, the very last battle, the Battle of Armageddon, seems to be where the Antichrist and all of his forces gather to this one stronghold of people who, who are rejecting them. They gather to attack, and this is when Christ comes with His people and His angels to destroy them. <clears throat> so this is John anticipating a future destruction of Babylon that will happen in the tribulation, but not at this point specifically where we are before the seven bold judgments. So the angel first announces here in verses 6 and 7, Fear God and give Him glory. That is, respond to the warning that He's giving you. Many people do not. And so he gives a second warning from a second angel. That is, it's, it's frivolous to follow after a kingdom that's going to fall. Why not follow? Why, don't, why not be a part of a kingdom that will not fall? A future kingdom. kingdom which is sourced in God. So the difference between believers and unbelievers, they live for eternal kingdom compared to a temporal one. The object of their worship quickly, the object of their worship obviously is the lamb or the beast. And verse 4 says these are the ones, the middle of the verse, these are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. And verse 1 says they have their name written on that is God's name and the Lamb's name written on their forehead. That is, God has sealed them. He has marked them out for His purposes. They are His servants. They fear God, verse 7. They die in the Lord, verse 13. So, so we have, again, a line drawn in the sand. Are we going to follow the Lamb? Are we going to worship the Lamb? Or are we going to worship the beast, as is talked about in verse 9? That these people of the earth who reject God, they worship the beast. And they end up becoming citizens of this temporal kingdom of Babylon which will fall. So the third angel comes to warn people about their loyalty. Are you going to be loyal to a beast who will die? If so, then you're going to die with him. Or are you going to be loyal to the lamb who will live, who lives? 
And that's what separates believers from other unbelievers. My New Testament professor says it this way. Dr. Compton says, It is far better to die at the hands of the beast than to suffer eternal punishment with him in the lake of fire. Whom do you worship? Okay, Maybe not. Obviously, it's not the, going to be the beast because we don't know who the Antichrist is right now. But, but how about his master? Do you care more about what he has set up in this life, the system of this world that he has to offer and the pleasures that are, that are there, or are you looking for the pleasures to come? That is really what shows you where you are as a... As a um, as a, as a believer or as an unbeliever. Finally, their their character. Their character. Believers are seen as undefiled, while unbelievers are seen as defiled. Verses 4 and 5, the 144,000 are talked about as not being defiled by women. This is referring to this elite group of believers. They are undefiled in the sense that they are celibate, meaning keep, they keep themselves so pure, chaste, it says there, um, that there's no hint of immorality among them. Uh, verse 5 says that there is no lie found in their mouth. This does not mean that they are perfect, but that they don't have the lie that's going on, the lie that's being told during this time of the tribulation, that is not found in their mouths. What is that lie? It is the lie that the Antichrist is the true and living God and that He is to be worshipped These 144,000 Jews do not have that lie in their mouths. And so they do not worship Him. Rather, they are exclusively giving themselves to Christ, to the Lamb, following Him, despite what the world is saying. Verse 5 at the end of the verse says that they are blameless. Again, this does not mean perfect. Believers in other parts of the Scriptures are also called blameless. This has to do with their mark of loyalty, whether they follow the Lamb wherever He goes or whether they follow the beast. And in that sense, they are blameless, even if it means suffering. And that's what we're told to do in Scripture as well. Suffer first and then receive glory in the life to come. So, if you want to be a part of God's blessing and not His wrath, then you need to be purchased by the Lamb. You need Christ to purchase you. And if that has happened, the result will be that you will respond in repentance and faith. You will turn from your sin and you will believe. And your life will be changed as a result of that purchase. And it will be marked by four things that we've talked about. You will respond to the warning of God. You will look for an eternal city, not not a temporal one. You will have Jesus as the object of your worship and your general character, okay, general, you're not perfect, but your general character is marked by being marked as undefiled. Could that be said of you? We could summarize this whole passage or the difference here between believers and unbelievers with verse 12. Look at that verse with me. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So what separates saints from pagans? It is perseverance. Obviously, it is the purchasing, the, the Lamb purchasing us. We understand that. But 
but it is a life that's marked by perseverance. So that's what goes in your blank there. This is how the Bible describes believers. Look at the end of the verse again. Who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. That's how they're described in verse 17. So the dragon, uh, chapter 12, verse 17. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So here it is. Is my life marked by holding to the testimony of God, obeying the commandments of God, and keeping to the testimony of Jesus? Is that what my life is marked by? Is your life marked by that? Because that's how believers live. John 15.10-14 I gave you a whole list of verses. I'm just going to read a couple of them for you. John 15.10-14 and 14 says, If you keep My commandments, Jesus says, you will abide in My love just as I have kept My Father's commandments and abide in His love. You are My friends if you do what I command you. 1 John 5.3 For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. 2 John 1.6 And this is the love that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. The way that we live matters. The way that we live matters because it shows that God has done a work in our lives. Now, God's not going to say, again, how many works have you done so I can determine if I should accept you or not. He accepts you on the basis of Jesus Christ and Him alone. But notice the end of verse 13. For their deeds will follow them. Every single person is going to stand before God. Believers are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And all of our, all of our works that were not done for God, that were not in obedience to God, those will all be burned up. And what will be left will be what we have done. God will accept us again, not on the basis of what's left. Okay, Everything's burned up and only the good things are left. And God's going to judge us on that. No. He's going to accept us on the basis of what Christ did. But our rewards in heaven will be based on what we did, whether we obeyed God or not. So those rewards that are left after the rest are burned up will be the basis of what how God uh, treats us, I guess you could say, or, or gives us opportunity for service in the next life. So what we have here in this passage is that the Lamb is coming in triumph. You can stand on His side by persevering now or you can give in and follow Satan and his schemes. The passage acts both as a warning. Verses 9-11 through are very clear. acts as a warning to unbelievers. Stop rejecting God's warning. Stop rejecting God's commands. It also acts as a level of assurance for us as believers that, that our vindication is coming soon. That those who remain faithful to God and His Word will be vindicated. They will be seen as, as right. Right now you may be walking around doing lots of things for God, but nobody recognizes it. Maybe, maybe your unsaved co-workers and your unsaved neighbors and family, they don't understand what you're doing and why you seem to be wasting your life following God. But in the next life, it will be clear. Your vindication will come. It will be clear who is in control, who we should have followed. And so you can persevere now by following the Lamb 
Or you can give in and follow the beast and be under God's judgment. The passage is really about contrasts between believer and an unbeliever. A person with eternal perspective and with temporal perspective. A person who perseveres now or suffers now and rests in the life to come and the person who suffers now or or rests now and suffers in the life to come. A person who is undefiled versus a person who is defiled. A person who follows the Lamb versus a person who follows Satan or his agents. A person who is obedient and full of faith and a person who disobeys in, in unbelief. A person who fears God most of all and a person who fears Satan most of all. A person who pursues eternal pleasure versus a person who pursues temporal fading away pleasure. In what category do you fall? Whom do you fear more? The Lord told us that we should not fear Him who can kill our body, but rather the One who can kill both body and soul in hell forever. Whom do you fear? The first step is You need to come to Christ. If you have not been saved, if if Christ has not changed you, if He has not regenerated you, given you the new birth, then you need to be saved. You You need to repent and believe. And Christ says that all who come to Me, I will in no way cast out. That whoever believes will have eternal life. So you need to repent and believe. And if you've done that, then you need to ask yourself, Is your life characterized by perseverance? By being obedient to the commandments of God and having faith in the testimony of Jesus? Is that what your life is marked by? Or is your life marked by overwhelming sin? Sin that you enjoy. Is your life marked by obedience and faith? Or are you... Or are you giving in? As believers, we are to give everything that we have to God. All of our energy, all of our resources. After all, it is His. We're simply stewards of it. And so that's our response as believers. Now maybe you're here today and you have been saved, but you haven't been baptized. There is an opportunity for you to do that here at this church. But you need to talk to me if that's something that you need to do. Maybe you are baptized, but you're not a member of a local church. You're not a member of a good Bible-believing church. We have a class that starts up um, in a couple weeks from today. There's a pamphlet on the back. There's a handout on the back where you could uh, you could come to a class and learn more about our church. You'd need to do that in order to join our church. And uh, you don't have to join if you take the class, but I'd encourage you to, to do that as well. There is a a contrast here, not just in the life to come between a believer and an unbeliever, but there should be a contrast now. We should look much different than the world based on our actions, based on what we believe. And God is waiting for us to respond to Him. How will we respond? I pray that it will be with perseverance and faith. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would help us. That We're reminded of Jesus as He's talking about the vine and the branches that apart from Him, we can do nothing. Father, we 
fail you sometimes by thinking that we can boast in ourselves that the resources that we have are earned by us, but Jesus has cleared that apart from Him we can do nothing. And so even this perseverance, we have to lean on Him. We have to trust Him. We have to receive power from Him. And You have given a clear way for us to tap into His power. And that is by looking at Your Word and obeying it. We pray that You give us the strength to do that. That You give us the resolve to obey You even when there's peer pressure even when the temporal satisfaction of sin seems to be more pleasurable, we pray that You'd help us to be more resolved even than we are now. But we don't count on those things to be the basis for which You accept us. We understand that the basis for which You accept us is Jesus Christ, His blood, His righteousness, and nothing more. We count on that with all that we have We trust Him. We continue to turn to Him. And we need You to pursue us when we stray from You. We pray that You would help us. Give us the strength that we need to obey You and to respond to this message in the way that You would want us to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.